Hi everyone, before we begin, just a quick content notice on this episode. I'm going to have to talk quite a bit about mm, child abuse. Uh, it's pretty unpleasant, unfortunately. There's not a good way to talk about this subject without going into it. So, uh, if that's not something you feel like dealing with today, maybe just skip this one. Alright, on with the show. Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. The year was 1972 in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. Nathan Lerner climbed the two flights of stairs that led from the ground floor of the building he owned to the upper two stories where his tenants lived. Nathan and his wife, Kyoko, had purchased the residential building some two decades before, seeking a little financial help to make their earnings as artists stretch as far as possible. Anyone who makes their living in the arts knows that the struggle is real. When the Lerners took possession of the building from the former owner, a man named Gare, who'd raised his family in the boarding house, they learned that the property came with a permanent tenant, an oddball recluse named Henry Darger, who had lived in the small two-room unit on the third floor for ten years and couldn't be induced to move when the Gares vacated ownership. Nathan and Kyoko hadn't minded. By all accounts, Henry was decidedly strange but made no trouble for anyone. He paid his rent on time, meticulously minded his own business, and was polite to the landlord and other tenants if he couldn't avoid them altogether. Henry kept to a strict routine of attending several daily masses at the nearest Catholic church and working at the various janitorial jobs that rotated him through the local Catholic-run hospitals. You never saw him unless he was coming or going. Most of the time, nobody knew he was there at all. On that day, Nathan climbed the stairs to Henry's room with his friend David Berglund behind him felt a little heavy, a little sad. By late 1972, Nathan had been the landlord of that building for 20 years, and his reclusive tenant Henry had become a fixture of his life. Henry didn't seem to enjoy anyone's company, but he was thoughtful and considerate and made gestures in his own oddball way towards a peaceful coexistence, if not outright friendship. At holidays, he would slide greeting cards under Nathan and Kyoko's door, Second-hand cards he'd found on his dumpster diving expeditions with the previous user's messages crossed out and Henry's well wishes written in. But now, Henry was gone, and the building didn't feel the same without him. The ancient wallpaper that lined the stairwell was worn down where Henry had leaned his shoulder against the wall as he'd climbed for many years. An old knee injury had troubled Henry for a long time, finally forcing him into retirement at age 71. His physical troubles were made worse when, three years before, he was hit by a car and suffered an injury to his hip that had never fully healed. Now 80 years old, Henry had finally conceded that he could no longer manage the stairs that led to the room that had been his home for more than three decades, since well before Nathan's arrival. 
He had asked his landlords to help him find a nursing home where he could move to and live out however many days remained to him. There was no one else to ask but them. Henry had no family living and no friends. The only people he really knew at all were Nathan and Kyoko. Kyoko had managed to arrange placement for Henry at the St. Augustine Home for the Aged, an institution staffed by nuns just three blocks from the boarding house. She knew that Henry had been a devout, lifelong Catholic, and she hoped that remaining in the neighborhood would bring him some comfort. She'd had no idea that it was the same nursing home in which Henry's father had died in 1908, orphaning the boy at the age of 16 years. She'd walked Henry to his new home a few days before, and told Nathan that he hadn't said much. He had accepted the change with the same impenetrable quiet he displayed all the time, never showing any hint of what was inside his mind. Today, Henry's room had to be cleaned out so that Nathan could begin preparations to flip it and bring in a new tenant. Since the room had been continuously occupied for more than three decades, he expected it to be a big job, but he wasn't expecting the sight that greeted him and David when they pushed open the door to Henry's room. Junk was piled everywhere. It seemed that Henry hadn't thrown away the packaging from a single thing he consumed over his many years of occupation, from dozens of bottles of Pepto-Bismol to single-use containers of honey and maple syrup. There were close to a thousand balls of string, organized by color and texture, and vast collections of broken rubber bands that Henry had repaired by tying them back together. There were especially large hordes of newspapers and magazines dating back years, and ancient comic books that looked like they'd been fished out of garbage cans long ago. Broken children's toys, crucifixes, countless pairs of eyeglasses with shattered lens, their frames repaired with medical tape, some stacks of detritus reached as high as Nathan's armpits. Nathan and David got to work, clearing away everything that was obviously destined for the trash heap. They hauled off two truckloads of garbage, and Nathan had just returned to the building from a run to the dump when David came running out to the sidewalk to greet him. You've got to see this, he said. You're not going to believe what I found up there. Nathan returned to the disaster of a room and worked his way into an alcove David had cleared among the junk. Spread across the top of several stacks of magazines was a colorful collage, at least six feet in length, made from several pieces of butcher paper that had been taped together. The collage featured figures that had been clipped from the magazines and newspapers that filled the room, along with the repeating motifs of small girls in cute, brightly colored frocks that had obviously been traced from some original source via carbon paper and then filled in with watercolor paints. The scene this artwork depicted was bizarre, yet strangely compelling. A panorama of a battlefield where seven little girls in prim, blue and yellow dresses led a fight against an army of grown men. The girls carried triumphant banners while in the background, columns of smoke rose into the sky and rockets burst in balls of fire. The field of battle was strewn with the bodies of the slain, men and children alike, with no detail spared in the depiction of their mortal injuries. David and Nathan searched through more stacks of Henry's belongings and soon uncovered a huge cache of similar art. All these years, Nathan had watched his strange, reclusive tenant coming and going, and yet he'd never suspected that Henry was as much an artist as Nathan was himself. Henry's style was naive, an art term for an untrained, emotionally responsive approach to art making that doesn't prioritize realism or established traditions, yet the skill was undeniable. Henry had obviously been self-taught, but he had a natural flair for composition, color theory, expressiveness, and, above all else, visual storytelling. 
Over the coming weeks, Nathan and Kyoko enlisted the help of more of their art friends, and together this team sorted through every scrap of Henry's possessions, cataloging and photographing the incredible collages and watercolors they discovered in this recluse's den. All told, there were more than 350 works of visual art squirreled away in Henry's small rented room. But the greatest prize of all were the books Henry had written, apparently with no intention of having them published, merely for himself. The largest of his several lengthy written works was titled The Story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as the Realms of the Unreal of the Glantico-Angelinian Warstorm caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. It's better known to fans of outsider art as In the Realms of the Unreal, and at more than 15,000 typewritten pages, it's the longest single work of fiction known to exist in the history of Western art. Henry Darger had spent his entire adult life, much of it in that very room, three stories above Lincoln Park, in service to his own private, elaborate fantasy. Not just living in his imagination, but laboring with a monastic dedication every spare minute of every day to bring this story to life. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. When I first started this podcast, my intention was to make it about outsider art and the beautiful, compelling weirdos who make it. In fact, the name of the podcast is taken from that idea. Uh, some of you know that I've been working on a novel about Van Gogh for a couple of years now. I really hope to finish it this year in 2024, but we'll see how it goes. And while I was immersed in the research for that novel, the phrase, future saint of a new era, popped into my head kind of as like a way to describe what Van Gogh was and what he would become after his death. And for a while I'd sort of played with the idea of using that phrase as the title for the book I was writing, but then when I felt that I needed some outlet to dork out about outsider art, I realized that it was really meant to be the title of this podcast. And then, of course, the show became about, you know, whatever I wanted to talk about, not strictly about the original topic. But, as it happens, I do want to talk about outsider art pretty frequently because, uh, I am obsessed with it. I could go into why I frequently prefer outsider work to the stuff that's made within, uh, like a traditionalist framework, whether we're talking about visual art or writing or music or whatever, but that would be a long digression. <laughs> For now, I'll suffice to say that of all the outsider artists I've ever encountered, Henry Darger is the one who touches me most deeply. Not only the art he made, which is undeniably weird and often unsettling, but also so intensely emotional. But also the story of his life is what really, really touches me. There have probably been other human beings whose lives have truly been lived in a pure, almost religious dedication to art, to the act of creation, whose lives became an active meditation on creativity, like without pretension, without ulterior motive, without even the intent or the desire to show what they'd made to another living soul. There have probably been lots of other people like Henry, but through sheer luck, we know about his work and his life, while all the others who dedicated themselves the way he did, solely to the creative act, probably ended with their life's great labor and their creations dumped in a landfill somewhere, which is super depressing. I can't talk about the subject without getting a little emotional, so you'll have to forgive me if I get a little sniffly over the course of this podcast. 
And I think that's why I'm so drawn to Henry Darger, because he represents creation as a private act, the purest form of creation, making art because one is compelled to make it without all the fucking depressing, <laughs> degrading, capitalistic necessities that are so often attached to the act of making nowadays. He wrote in the realms of the unreal and made his incredible, intricate, yards-long, super weird illustrations for the book because he loved this story. Because this story truly meant something to him. It meant everything to him. And I think there's something rare and beautiful in that. Henry Darger is, to me, analogous to people who uh, take religious vows, like monks and nuns and friars, who live all their lives in enclosure, meditating on the nature and mysteries of God. But it wasn't God that Henry was avowed to. It was this story, this fantasy, that existed inside his mind. Because the story gave meaning and structure to his past and his present, and it gave him a way to take control of the things that were beyond his control. The things that filled him with horror and sadness and hopelessness and despair. He wasn't just writing a fantasy novel for the reasons that most authors write novels today, because he loved the genre and loved to read. He certainly wasn't writing it because he had dreams of becoming a known author. He spent his entire life dedicated to one story because he had a relationship with that story, with the ideas and the images it contained. Because the story and Henry were, in some deep and essential way, the same. And I just think that's important. I think it's important, especially for someone like me who makes her living from art, or, you know, like for a lot of my listeners who I know aspire to make a living from their art one day. It's important to know, to really understand, like absorb this, y'all. It is possible to live a life in true service to the act of creation. Making the things you want to make has real value to you. And maybe that's the only person it needs to have any value to. I don't know. I don't really know what it is about Henry Darger that like moves me so deeply on such a personal level. I just know that I really, really love this story. And I love him as a person. And I wish he'd had a whole lot more love while he lived. Because he deserved it. Volume 1 of the story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as the Realms of the Unreal of the glandico angelinian Warstorm caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. The story of the bravery of the Vivian girls called Violet and her sisters. This volume, I hope I can truthfully say, has scenes and incidents which no other story of usual size in the world may contain, either in fiction or reality. Things that might be comical, sad, and horrifying. To write everything here would spoil it all for the reader. Let the reader follow every event and adventure, and then he can, if he sets his mind and heart on it, take it on as if he himself was an actual participator. The author writes the scenes in this volume as if he had experienced them himself. Henry Joseph Darger Jr. was born in Chicago on April 12th, 1892, to a German immigrant father and an American mother named Rosa Fullman. When Henry was four years old, his mother died of puerperal fever shortly after giving birth to a baby girl. And Henry's father, who worked as a tailor, struggled with some kind of physical disability. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was, it was pretty impairing. He couldn't care for the baby on his own, so Henry's sister was given up for adoption like as soon as she was born, and he never saw her again. Due to his father's disability, Henry did the majority of the household work from a young age. 
He bought groceries and other necessities and did, like, you know, other tasks around the house to help his dad out. He remembered his dad as a really kind man who always treated him well, and his early years with his father seemed to be the best that he could remember. He had fond memories of Christmases with his dad when he would receive illustrated books, which he loved to read. With some of his pennies he made running errands for other people in the neighborhood, Henry sometimes bought himself little tins of watercolor paints, the cheap kind made for children, not anything fancy. His dad taught him how to read, which he took to readily from a very young age. In fact, his reading skills were so advanced that by the time he started school, they put him directly into the third grade. Like, he skipped right over first and second, straight to third grade. He was already reading newspaper articles fluently by then, and even third grade curriculum wasn't much of a challenge for him, but that was kind of the best they could do given his very young age. He was fascinated by military history and weather patterns, and as a child he would stand at the window for hours watching thunderstorms and snowstorms, just noting the movement of the clouds. Henry was notably odd from a very young age. His classmates quickly gave him the nickname Crazy, and he was often a distraction in class because he frequently made strange noises. He had an intensely stubborn attitude, determined that everything should be done in the ways he preferred, and when his will was thwarted, he was prone to some impressive temper tantrums, like by his own account. Woo! Nowadays, there's no doubt that Henry would have been diagnosed as autistic. In reading his biographies, you can't help but notice the classic symptoms of autism spectrum disorder, like his bizarrely precocious reading skills, his rigid thinking, a keen sense of justice and a demand that life should be fair for everyone, his habit of making strange noises as a means of self-soothing, an uncanny skill for mimicry which is known as echolalia and is now considered a common trait of people on the autism spectrum. He had an intense dislike for crowds and other noisy, like, frenetic, wild situations. He avoided social interaction. Other people described him as never displaying any emotion of any kind, yet we know from his writing that he was full of intense emotion. He just chose to express it through his art rather than the way most neurotypical people do. As an adult, he even cut the sleeves off of his shirts because he couldn't tolerate the sensation of sleeves clinging to his arms. Like today, we would absolutely acknowledge Henry Darger as a neurodivergent person. And I hope we would give him more grace and accommodation than he received during his own lifetime. But back then, you know, at the turn of the last century, Henry was just seen as weird and troublesome. And except for his father, no one really liked him much. In my younger days, when angry over something, I burned holy pictures and hit the face of Christ in pictures with my fist. That was my temper then. Yet I am not that way to persons only all sorts of gadgets and other things. If something I'm working on goes wrong, I am a spitting, growling, if not thundering, volcano. And do I say bad words and blaspheme? Oh my. It says in the Holy Bible, for those who do not bear the cross, there is no salvation. I'm sorry to say I defied that and still do. When Henry was eight years old, his father's disability became so complicated that the senior Henry was forced to enter a hospital for full-time care, and young Henry was promptly shunted to a Catholic orphanage and boys' home by his school teacher, who probably couldn't wait to get this disruptive, difficult child the hell out of the classroom. Henry struggled in that environment, as any child would, let alone an autistic one. He became angry and belligerent in the boys' home, and by the time he was 12, the nuns who ran the place had convinced his hospital-bound father to sign the papers that would send Henry off to the Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children in Lincoln, Illinois. 
Henry Sr. tried to make other arrangements for his son. He even got some female relative to apply to adopt Henry, but that didn't pan out on some kind of technicality. And finally, Henry Sr. was left with no real options. With the boys' home refusing to care for him any longer, uh, an asylum for mentally disabled children was the only place Henry Jr. could go. Of course, Henry was far from feeble-minded, to use the terminology of the time. He was exceptionally intelligent and had a great many talents, but his autistic traits of social withdrawal and tendency toward meltdowns were uh, <laughs> beyond the ability of most caretakers of that era to understand or deal with. There are conflicting records indicating the official diagnosis that sent him to the asylum. Some sources say it was self-abuse, and tell me, do you know any 12-year-olds who don't constantly spank the monkey? While others say the intake papers simply read, Little Henry's heart is not in the right place. An allusion, I think, to his autism and the difficulty adults had in controlling him. The Lincoln Asylum was not a good place. Not for Henry, not for any of its inmates. Some truly awful things happened there. I won't go into full details because it's a disturbing history and it's really difficult to face the fact that even in relatively recent times, we ever found it acceptable to treat the most vulnerable members of our society this way. The asylum was isolated on 54 acres and was a fully autonomous town of its own, so like requiring no services from the outside community, which also meant, conveniently, that it could not be subjected to the scrutiny of outsiders. Residents were knowingly fed milk from cows that had been infected with tuberculosis, were forced into unpaid child labor making products that were sold for profit, and were forced to care for their fellow residents, again, as unpaid labor because there wasn't enough staff to go around. Mass graves were discovered on the side of the grounds years after the place was finally closed in 1975. Physical, emotional, and sexual abuse were rampant, and Henry almost certainly experienced those things from the age of 12 when he first arrived until the age of 17, when his fourth attempt at escape finally proved successful. He, along with two other inmates of the asylum, managed to escape the grounds on foot, then jumped on a train that took them to Decatur. The other boys were content to stay in Decatur, but Henry wanted to return to the cosmopolitan city he'd once called home. So uh, he walked from Decatur to Chicago, which is more than 180 miles. This was much better than his first escape attempt, though, uh, when a mounted overseer roped him from horseback, tied his hands, and made him run behind his horse all the way back to the asylum. Yikes. In the city, Henry tracked down his godmother who helped him find a job as a janitor at a nearby hospital. He rented a room by himself in a boarding house and supported himself on the meager income of a custodian from that day until he retired at age 71. He would have gone to his father and taken up life with him again, but just before his first attempt at escaping the asylum, the young boy received a letter from St. Anthony's home for the aged, informing him that his father had died. Henry was an orphan now, still technically a child, left to build a man's life without anyone to guide him, with nearly a decade of horrific trauma trailing in his wake. In this story, for more than 43 years, child slavery existed in the Calvarinian country. Hundreds of thousands of children torn from their parents, made to work themselves to death without getting a cent, and horrors upon horrors almost equal that of perdition. The abuses Henry experienced in the asylum never left his psyche, as you can imagine. While he was still an inmate there, he'd begun dwelling in fantasy, which I'm sure was much preferable to the reality in which he was trapped. Drawing on the military histories he'd loved reading in school, he constructed an elaborate world inside his head. 
the kingdom of Abiana, where everyone was good and righteous and Christian, but the children of Abiana had been torn from their families and forced into slave labor. See, this is how perceptive Henry was. Far from being mentally impaired, he correctly identified his living situation as slavery, and that's exactly what it was. The asylum apparently existed solely to make developmentally delayed people valuable to society, which meant uh, forcibly extracting money from their labor, yay capitalism. But because neither children nor disabled people had rights back then, they sure as shit were not getting paid for the work they did. This, by the way, is the exact same system of exploitation that still exists to this day in the North American prison system. Inmates are forced to work in factories making products that are sold for profit and either aren't paid at all or are paid like pennies on the hour or are only paid in commissary credits which are worthless once you're out of the prison system. It's literally just slavery. Like, there's no other word to describe it and we should all be extremely pissed off that people are still being enslaved in the 21st century in countries that went to great pains including civil war in the case of the states to outlaw this practice. Okay, I'm off my anti-prison industry soapbox and back to Henry Darger. So in his fantasy world, while he was still living in a state of slavery in this asylum, he imagined a great war between the good kingdom of Abiana and the bad kingdom of Glandolinia, who'd captured all the children and forced them to work. And while the adults of Abiana were trying to fight this war from the outside, the enslaved children staged a revolt from within. The leaders of this revolt were the seven Vivian sisters, Daisy, Hetty, Violet, Joyce, Jenny, Angeline, and Catherine. These characters would eventually become the most active heroes of In the Realms of the Unreal, but for now they existed only in Henry's mind. And I think it's significant that the heroes of this story were girls. Unlike the difficult, sometimes violent fellow inmates Henry lived with since he was eight years old, first at the Catholic boys' home and now at the asylum, the Vivian sisters were nothing like the children Henry knew firsthand. They were, I believe, what he imagined his sister might be now. His mythic, powerful sister who had taken the life of their mother and had been sent away only to turn her misfortune into this unimaginable privilege with a stable family, two caring parents, and a real home. Of course the heroes of Henry's story were little girls. Their beauty could not never be painted had they been seen for real. But their nature and ways and goodness and so were still more pretty and spotless. They shunned evil ways not through fear of their parents, but through fear of God. They were always willing to do as they are told, going to Mass and Holy Communion every day, and living the lives of little saints. But their lives, for at least a number of years, were to be all of sorrow. Although he had clearly hated the conditions in the asylum and the suffering he'd both experienced and witnessed had left an indelible mark on his psyche, Henry found adult life in the city so challenging that he sometimes wished he could return to the asylum. At least in an asylum he had order, he had predictability, which is incredibly important to autistic people. He knew where his next meal was coming from and he knew how to navigate the social structure of the place such as it was. None of that was true about living on his own in the adult world in a city as huge as Chicago. He often retreated to reading and tended to stick to books that had been written for much younger children, the stories he remembered from his childhood. Fiction was his escape from the demands of daily life. He was good at his work as a janitor and he took pride in a job well done, but he also found hospitals to be difficult work environments because so many unpredictable and dramatic things happen there, and because the nuns who ran these Catholic institutions often had very particular ideas about how things should be done, which uh, 
conflicted with Henry's tendency to want to do everything in his own specific, well-ordered way. Soon, with stress from his job building, he felt that he needed a bigger story to live inside than the books he checked out from the library or, you know, found discarded in garbage cans on his walks home from work. And that was when he recalled the fantasy about the enslaved Abianian children, the imaginary narrative that had helped him cope with life inside the asylum. Over the years, the story had grown in scope to this sprawling narrative that included many battles and other dramatic events. The lore had become rich and deep and nuanced. He built an incredibly intricate world within the confines of his imagination, complete with religious traditions and political factions and songs and mythology and stories within stories. The realms of the unreal was a real place to Henry, and now, in 1909, he set out to finally get the story out of his head and onto the page. Now, back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was common to have illustrations in novels, usually just like black and white woodcuts that could be reprinted really easily, but sometimes full color plates, which was especially true in children's fiction. So he couldn't just write about everything that happened in the realms of the unreal. He had to draw it to and paint it. He had to illustrate his book. He knew he could draw and paint many kinds of pictures. He worked steadily, but tore up sketches of the Vivian girls that proved very unsatisfactory. The hasty sketching would not matter to Penrod if he could catch their beautiful, queenly, subtle, and innocent, half-frightened look, and a look which was not vanity, slyness, but something more pretty, holy, lovable, dignified, and important. There is nothing yet that I have seen that is far more splendid and beautiful and sublime among all creation than the prettiest angels in pictures. Yet they're dim compared to the Vivian girls. He had no formal art training and probably hadn't had much time to practice drawing while he'd been incarcerated in the asylum. He didn't really trust himself to depict the scenes from his story in a way that would satisfy him, like vivid and realistic as real as the memories of asylum life still were inside his head. So he began searching for advertisements and photographs and illustrations in the magazines that were left behind in hospital waiting rooms and in the garbage cans he passed on the street. Any images that struck him as belonging within the realms of the unreal. This usually meant images of young girls in pretty feminine frocks to represent the Vivian sisters, but he also found illustrations from military histories useful and religious imagery, especially the Madonna with child as a motif that appears again and again in his work. He took these items home and carefully cut out and saved all the images that would suit his purposes, and then he cataloged these images by pasting them onto the pages of old phone books, which was kind of ingenious because he could find what he needed by flipping to the right section of his phone books. So one section was all for Violet Vivian, one for Daisy, one for Hetty, etc. And of course there were sections for the evil Glandolinians who kept all the children in cruel bondage. There were source images of soldiers, of galloping horses, of waving banners, the interiors of homes and other buildings, like everything you can imagine in a story like this. Henry used a variety of techniques to compose his images from those source materials. Obviously, he used collage, as you might expect, but he also experimented with some surprisingly intricate processes, like layering collaged images over one another and then building up further layers with watercolor paint and ink pen. He copied some in what might have been kind of a grid process and was able to get some really good mirror images of some of his source material in that way, although we don't actually have any evidence that he used 
literal grids. Grid copying is very familiar to anybody who has like done drawing classes or, or learned drawing technique. Henry made what looks exactly like grid technique images to enlarge and shrink and mirror some of his source materials, but no actual grids. So he apparently was just doing this all by eye. Incredible. But the method he finally settled on for most of his hundreds of paintings and the method his work is best known for was tracing. He traced some images so many times that you can see deeply impressed lines in the surviving source paper that show where his pencil ran again and again. The text of the story itself is also a fascinating collage. You can see countless references to places and characters found in Henry's favorite books. He was especially fond of the Oz stories and included many references to L. Frank Baum's series, but he also referenced the works of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Booth Tarkington and Dickens repeatedly as well. But it isn't only the media Henry consumed that forms the imagistic and thematic collage that is in the realms of the unreal. The Glandolinian soldiers wear the same uniforms as the Confederates from the Civil War, who would still certainly have been like prominent bad guys in American culture at the turn of the 20th century. The only change to the uniform, which is fascinating to me and still unexplained, is that the Glandolinian soldiers usually wear what Henry calls in the book professor hats, and when you look at the corresponding illustrations for these scenes, you find these characters dressed in Confederate war uniforms with the cap and mortarboard of a college graduate. I am so intrigued by this choice. I desperately want to know why... Why? <laughs> what did Professor Hats represent to Henry? Why was this a symbol of evil for him? Like, who did he interact with who had a mortarboard, and why did this person strike him as a villain? The story is full of references to his real experiences in the asylum, too. The chief bad guy is the evil Glandolinian general John Manley, who was named after a boy at the asylum who could get particularly violent when crossed. There are several scenes where the child characters are roped by cowboys from the backs of horses and dragged or made to run behind the animals, which was certainly a reference to the time when that very thing happened to Henry himself. There are uh, an uncomfortable number of scenes where children are strangled, sometimes to death, by General Manley and his men. And in each of these scenes, the bulging eyes, purple faces, and protruding tongues of the victims are rendered in sharp, meticulous detail. As if Henry saw such a thing for himself or experienced it himself when he was a child and the horrible experience never left him. All of this combines to make such bizarre imagery that you might be tempted at first to laugh at it because, I mean, it's absurd. Scenes of men in soldiers' uniforms, but with graduate caps pointing guns at groups of little girls. Scenes of cowboys roping running children from horseback. It's weird and startling and seems like a joke at first glance, but there's just something about it that's not funny, despite its weirdness. Because you can sense the emotion behind all these images, whether you're talking about the illustrations or the story itself. This art wasn't made, these ideas weren't expressed for amusement. You feel that very clearly when you encounter Henry Darger's work. These things were made because, despite the name of Henry's fantasy world, all of this was very, very real to him. Perhaps one of the most striking features of Henry Darger's art, and one of the aspects that has been most often commented upon by other people, is the fact that whenever he depicted children naked, they all had penises, regardless of their gender. This fact seems to be the chief reason why Henry has been unfairly maligned by history, which is something I'll get into later, and boy am I gonna get into it, strap in for a classic Libby rant. 
But I genuinely don't think there's anything uh, sinister behind his depiction of little girls with penises. If Henry's little sister hadn't been put up for adoption right away, he surely would have helped care for her and naturally would have figured out that boys and girls look different down there. But the only experiences he had of other people's unclothed bodies was in the bathroom at the two all-boy institutions where he'd lived as a child. And remember, he was born in the late Victorian era and lived his adolescence and young adult years in the Edwardian area when images of naked people were just not that easy to find, y'all. You had to really go out looking for that specific thing and you had to know where to look because nudies weren't readily available like they are now. It's also very clear from his fiction that Henry didn't really have an understanding of sex the way most of us understand sex. There's one scene in his novel where one character asks another what rape means, and the character says that rape is when you cut someone open to see their insides. This idea about rape probably comes from Henry's fixation on a particular missing child case, which I'll go into later, but the passage from In the Realms of the Unreal makes it very clear that Henry lacked an adult understanding of sex and sexuality. He didn't depict little girls with penises because he was some kind of dangerous, sexually obsessed psychopath. In fact, he was exactly the opposite of that. He depicted girls that way because he was entirely innocent, because he just assumed that all people were made the same way he was made. It's a reasonable assumption to make if the only other naked people you've ever seen also have the same equipment you have. And this right here is why it can be so important to understand the artists themselves when you're trying to interpret works of art. Because it's easy, and one might argue lazy, to look at undeniably disorienting, sometimes flat-out upsetting works like Henry Darger's where there are children being strangled and disemboweled and there are penises everywhere, and to just assume that this is the work of a dangerous psychotic child predator when in reality what you're seeing is an expression of strength and the reclamation of one's dignity created by a person who suffered horrifically and had no one to advocate for him, no one to help him process what he went through. He had to do it all himself, one way or another, and this is the way that made sense to him and helped him live a relatively normal, stable life. The little girls also had a different nature that made them seem like men instead of mere little girls. There was nothing that they could not do. They could ride the best horses. They could rise in the stirrups standing up. They can stand the coldest water and air without any clothes on. Now, although Henry was famously a loner, he wasn't entirely alone in his life. As a young adult, he had a buddy by the name of William Schroeder. Not much is known about William Schroeder, so I'm making a lot of inferences about the nature of his relationship with Henry based on what Henry wrote about him in his memoir. But from what I gather, it sounds to me like... William was a really good-hearted person who recognized that Henry was a little different from most people and needed a little extra attention and support. And he probably recognized that Henry struggled a lot trying to care for himself in a world that wasn't set up for people like him to succeed in. And it seems to me that William gave the attention and support to Henry because it was a kind thing to do for a fellow human being. William often invited Henry for dinner at the home he shared with his mother and his sisters, and often William would accompany Henry to Riverview Park, which was a big amusement park in Chicago, a major attraction. And Henry loved it there and would spend as much money as he could on rides and popcorn and candy, and it kind of seems to me like when he was at Riverview Park, Henry got to experience the normal childhood he'd been denied during his actual childhood. He and William went there to, you know, cut loose and have a good time, act like a couple of goofballs. And Henry really treasured that time and the friendship he had with William. 
You can tell that William held a very special place in Henry's life because he wrote William into his book, along with himself. I know a man well who is an exceedingly dangerous foe of those who hate little children. Who is he? He lives far away in the United States of America. He is Captain Henry Joseph Darger. His friend's name is William Schloder. The two are regular hawks. They are the head presidents of the Children's Protective Society called the Gemini. It is a lodge of men congregated who are terrible enemies of all those who do the children any kind of harm. The Children's Protective Society didn't only exist in the realms of the Unreal folks. No, no. Henry and William brought it to life IRL. Well, <laughs> it was very real and operational to Henry. William, I imagine, agreed to join this society, and together they kept an eye out for children who might need help while they were at Riverview Park. Like, lost kids, hurt kids, you know, that kind of thing. And I can imagine how this all might have played out, and it's very sweet in my own imagination. I'm sure Henry must have talked endlessly about the book he was writing and the fantasy world he'd created while he was in the asylum. Uh, if you've ever hung out with an autistic person, you know what I'm talking about. And William must have understood that the idea of protecting children and bringing justice to children had a very deep, important meaning to Henry. So I think he was going along with the concept of the Children's Protective Society as a means of helping Henry to feel like he wasn't alone in dealing with his difficult past. And I don't know, I'm just really grateful that Henry had someone like William in his life who was willing to enter into this incredibly important fantasy world with him and to help him actualize it in some way, help him feel empowered through the story that meant so much to him. It was a very loving, considerate thing to do. So William Schroeder, you seem like you were a really wonderful person and I am glad you existed. In dear old United States, a young man of sturdy build was on his way toward a three-story house in the region of St. Joseph's Hospital. He wore the garb of a captain. He was a stern-looking man, Herculean build, and tall enough to embrace six feet. He had a fierce visage, full of determination, and if one happened to see him looking at them, they would have felt like rushing away for safety at once. This theme of protecting children was intensely important throughout Henry's life, for obvious reasons. Much of the lengthy, sprawling plot of In the Realms of the Unreal hinges on various organizations and schemes and supernatural creatures who all exist solely to defend children. He created whole fantastical species of mythological beasts called Blengens, who are giant protector spirits that like loom over the small children in his illustrations. The pictures of the Blengens are my favorites out of all of Henry's paintings. Since Blengens are fantasy creatures, there wasn't any source images he could use to trace them, at least not entirely. He did trace like some parts here and there. Mostly though, what you get with his Blengen illustrations are his pure, unfettered creativity unleashed, and the images are astonishing. Some of the Blengens are gigantic naked girls who have these incredible curled ram's horns and the most unbelievable wings like butterfly wings, but radiant with this vibrating light and covered in eye spots like a peacock's tail. There are enormous dragon-like snaky creatures. There's one that's kind of like Falcor from the NeverEnding Story, but with a cat's head. I love the Blengens. They're the Avengers of all the bad things Henry experienced and witnessed as a boy. They're all the anger and passion for justice that he had to bottle up all his life in order to survive, bursting out of his imagination in this fiery color. Crimesian Gazunian, hideous, but a very gentle creature. Human-headed Blingans of Calvaryn Island. Only the angels of heaven can combat these creatures. Cat-headed Blingiglominian Gazook, or the Thunderer. They have voices like human beings, but their roar is a proverb, 
10,000 times louder than the roar of the lion. Their wings make a roar like an approaching cyclone. No man is safe in their presence who harms a child. The creatures have shown a greater fondness toward children as to exceed the love of any mother. Henry's desire to protect children combined with his desire to make better art gave him the idea of trying to adopt a child in 1917 after he'd been drafted for World War I but then discharged for poor eyesight. His reasoning meant that he could use the opportunity to observe a live model so he could improve his drawing skills and he could also provide safety for a child in need of protection. After all, he was one of the founding members of the Society for the Protection of Children, so by his logic, it made perfect sense. He would be the ideal adoptive father, obviously. He petitioned the church to allow him to adopt a child from one of the Catholic orphanages, but of course he was denied. And he was furious about this and expressed his rage through a subplot in his story where one of the virtuous generals is denied the chance to protect some girls who are in need of aid, and the resulting monologue is quite dramatic and expressive. I hate them. I hate them. I hate and I hate them. Ain't those little girls mine to protect body and soul? Can't I do what I like and make them all happy when it's my duty to do so? Who's the Glandolinian warted skunk to hinder, I wonder? Right around the time Henry began writing his book when he was 19 years old, he read a story in the newspaper about a little girl who first went missing and then was proven to have been murdered when her body was discovered about a month later. Her name was Elsie Parabek. She was five years old at the time, and she was abducted by an unknown person while she was walking home from her aunt's house, which was just around the corner from her own home. The details of the case were upsetting, as you can imagine, and reading all this stuff while the horrors of his own experiences were only two years behind him, Henry couldn't help but be affected. Elsie Parabek became the avatar in Henry's mind for all the children who were out there being hurt and murdered by adults. Children just like the boy he had so recently been. He kept the picture of Elsie which he cut out of the newspaper, and that picture, that reminder of all the suffering children in the world, was so important to him that he kept it on himself at all times, in his wallet. He set up a little shrine in his room to Elsie, too, that he maintained with little artifacts throughout his entire life. He wrote Elsie into his book in the form of the character Annie Ehrenberg, and she became an important and active figure in the overall story. Many years after Elsie was killed, someone broke into Henry's locker at work and stole the picture out of his wallet, and he was heartbroken and enraged over it. After the picture went missing, Henry killed off the character Annie Ehrenberg and made a major focus of the story, Vengeance, for a while. In the Realms of the Unreal becomes just intensely focused on the other characters avenging the assassination of Annie Ehrenberg. And during the time he was writing that storyline, he was desperately searching for the missing picture of Elsie Parabek. Here comes the part where I rant. Because a lot of yahoos and ding-dongs out there, still to this day, have decided that Henry Darger must have, number one, been the person who killed Elsie Parabek, and number two, must have been a serial killer, and the entire body of their evidence seems to hinge on three facts. One, he made gruesome art depicting violence against children. Two, girls with penises, which honestly today gives some pretty strong transphobic vibes. I mean, from the people who have decided that he was a serial killer, like this is some trans panic horse shit y'all and it's time to let that mindset go. But mostly, point three, because he kept a picture of Elsie Parabeg with him and had a little shrine to her memory in his room. And y'all, I cannot with this absolute bullshit. When you Google Henry Darger's name, the third hit you get is an article in The Guardian titled, Portraits of a serial killer, question mark? 
Like, the fucking myth that he was a dangerous psycho is still one of the most prominent things about him. And there is no evidence. None whatsoever. Let me stress that again. There is not one single solitary shred of evidence that Henry Darger ever harmed a single hair on anyone's head. But because Elsie Parabek's murder was never solved, a whole lot of people have just decided, like the super fucking smart armchair sleuth they are, that Henry must have done it. And then he kept her picture as like a thrilling reminder of his crime. First of all, allow me to point out that even if he had killed a single person, which again, there is no evidence for that literally anywhere, that doesn't make him a serial killer. By definition, you have to kill a series of people to be a serial killer. And second, if having a penchant for violent art makes you a de facto killer, then every horror novelist, every video game designer who's ever worked on a first-person shooter, every director who's ever made a violent film, and every single person who has ever enjoyed consuming these kinds of media is also a serial killer. The fact that people are still out there writing clickbaity scare articles about this poor, reclusive, lonely, abused man who just wanted to be left the fuck alone with his fantasy story and trying to cast him as some kind of boogeyman on literally the flimsiest non-evidence I've ever seen in my life is disgusting to me. It is reprehensible. It's like he's still being bullied and abused and misunderstood from beyond the grave. He's been dead for longer than I've been alive, and people are still treating the dude like shit. Listen, you fuckers at The Guardian and anyone else who's ever besmirched the good name of Henry Darger, art is supposed to make you uncomfortable. Art is supposed to shake up your present view of the world and make you think about things in a different way. Art is supposed to yank you out of your cozy little cocoon and force you into an awareness of what is going on around you. Like the fact that we used to just shove disabled people into horrific slavery institutions where they were abused in the name of corporate profits. Sorry, <laughs> I get a little emotional talking about this. Because it's so outrageous to me that because Henry Darger was weird, because he wasn't like other people, that even today, in the second century after he was born, when we're supposed to be more enlightened and more accepting and more rational and more socially conscious and evolved people, we're still gleefully pulling this ableist bullshit, like declaring that somebody must have been a serial killer because... No reason! Just cuz. Just cuz he makes us uncomfy. Fuck. Knock it off already. This is all on account of that Darger in his old picture. How is it that the loss of the photograph is responsible for the situation of this war? Asked General Viviana rather hotly. That is a mystery, Your Excellency. Even to me. Do you pray for the recovery of the stolen picture? I have tried various means. Invaded the Glandolinian public libraries. Without success. As it is fair in war, I would have seized the newspapers the picture was in, but I could not trace it, though I examined book after book. Prediction and threat. Campaign of Christians being broken. Christian armies receiving blows after blows, foes sweeping all before them. Eddie Ehrenberg becomes the martyr in an increasingly brutal conflict. Altar pulled down. Came to be paid to Christian nations. No mercy will be shown. Am an enemy against the Christian cause, and desire with all my heart to see to it that their armies are crushed, and that I will see to the winning of the war for the Glandolinians. Results of too many unjust trials. God is too hard to me. I will not bear it any longer for no one. Henry's story was so real to him that after he failed to find the missing picture of Elsie Parabek, 
And after subsequent intense cycles of prayer and service at the church failed to induce God to intervene on his behalf, he began rewriting the plot of his novel. His self-insertion character, General Darger, turns against the Abianian army and goes to fight for the Glandolinians, passionately desiring to see all of Christendom destroyed. The Vivian girls declare him to be a traitor, and finally, Henry stopped writing the story altogether, which lasted for three months. And after dedicating his every spare moment to the story for years, those three months must have felt like an eternity to him. I feel as if it is of no use to pray any longer. The Glandolinians tell me that God never listens to the prayers of child slaves, and he certainly did not listen to me. Don't believe what the wicked Glandolinians tell you. God is a loving father to us all, and he always knows what is best for us. If we pray to him for something that is not good for us, he does not grant it, no matter how badly we want it. Why, I never thought of that at all. Will you tell him that you will trust him to do what is best for you, so you can be a happy little girl again? I will kneel down this minute and ask our blessed Lord to forgive me for my doubting him. Eventually, Henry returned to his life's work. He took up the pen again and kept writing the story of the revolt of the child slaves against their oppressors. Over the ensuing decades, the one friendship of his life with William Schroeder played out until William moved to Texas in 1956. Shortly after moving, William passed away, and the news affected Henry deeply. He bounced from one custodial job to another, from one Catholic hospital to another, living his unremarkable life, attending Mass each day, doing his work until it was time to go home, and then he devoted himself to writing and illustrating his story. The story kept going, incorporating Henry's evolving thoughts and opinions and ideas about battle and adventure and justice and religion and ethics and literature and weather, all the things that interested him, all the things that were important to him, with this rich, entirely inner, entirely private life. I surely did not feel at all good about it when I received the very sad news that my dear friend Bill died Saturday. I feel as if lost in empty space. He was like a brother to me. Now nothing matters to me at all, and I am going to hereafter live my kind of life. For our suffering in this life, I almost hate Adam and Eve, for they are responsible, for their sin is the cause. By the middle of the century, a new technology came along that Henry made good use of, photo-enlargement. At the time, it cost him $3 to make a single enlargement, and given that his salary was $25 a week, that was a lot of money. He budgeted for one enlargement per week, and over time he built up an impressive collection of enlarged and otherwise uh, mechanically altered source images. So the size of his template collection boomed during that time, and his art took on an even more distinctive quality, with a notable repetition of the same images, sometimes many times across the same composition. This is a visual art technique called rhythm, and the fact that Henry used rhythm naturally in his work without being taught what rhythm was is more evidence for his inborn genius, this native understanding of the fundamentals of visual art and an unconscious emotional response to compositional techniques that, I believe, can be studied in academia or in other forms of formal training, but it can't really be learned. And I know this is an unpopular opinion, but nevertheless, it is an opinion I hold, that anyone who has the interest and the discipline can learn the fundamentals of any art form well enough that they can make competent, even pleasing creations, but that the special something 
that make some artist's work really stand out can't be accumulated or taught or learned. It can be refined, but it can't be picked up if you don't already have it. An instinctive understanding for what art is and how it works is, I believe, again, my opinion, a personality trait that some people have and others don't. And it's why I'm so damn obsessed with outsider artists. Nobody taught Henry Darger what rhythm was or how to use it effectively in a composition. Nobody taught him how to create a sense of atmosphere by depicting farther off objects in progressively bluer and less saturated shades. Nobody taught him color theory or, you know, whatever else. He just saw those things around him and he felt the rightness and the emotional impact of those things so deeply, so instinctively, they seemed to be more instinct in him than intentional action. And that inborn sense of art is what comes through in great outsider work like Darger's. It's what comes through in the works of Vincent van Gogh and Leonore Carrington and Daniel Johnston and Frida Kahlo and Wesley Willis and Matthew Burnside, who I'm hoping to interview for this show. It's what you'll find in the work of Philip K. Dick, who's famous now, as are some of the other artists I've mentioned, but who was decidedly an outsider during his own time. It's what you see in the work of Buzz Blur, who we just lost a couple days ago as I'm recording this podcast and who I was already planning to do an episode about. Even without training, and frequently the very best outsider artists have no formal training whatsoever, if it's born into your soul, then the art is there, loud and clear, undeniably, screaming in your face. And that's why technically brilliant, highly trained, academy-approved, tradition-cleaving art often feels soulless. Even when you recognize that an incredible amount of skill and knowledge went into it, because the stuff that is made for academy and for tradition, it's made to display skill. Its purpose is to show off. Like, I'm sorry, there's no other, there's no other way to phrase that. It doesn't have the purpose that Darger's work had, which was to carry an idea and transmit that idea into the hearts and minds of other people through whatever means necessary. In early episodes of this podcast, I asked many of my guests what the difference is between art and not art. I got a lot of different answers to that question, usually very cautious and trepidatious answers, because I know it's kind of like a moment where you push somebody out onto thin ice and then just see what happens. <laughs> but this is my answer. A lot of people don't like my answer, I know that. I've gotten into all kinds of fun internet arguments with people about this, and once, an in-person argument which was extra cool. But it is what it is. My opinion is what it is. And the lives and works of people like Henry Darger are why I feel the way I do about art. He seemed to become unconscious of his surroundings, unconscious of everybody around him. He was somewhat sullen, and they knew from experience all words were wanton expenditure on him. They had come to regard him as many of us regard the wonders of nature, without any questionings and often without any interest. What's maybe the most interesting thing to me about In the Realms of the Unreal is the ending. Because first it has one ending, where the Christian forces of Abiania are victorious and the Vivian sisters finally manage to overthrow their oppressors and they reunite with their father and everything turns out alright. And then immediately after you turn the page and there's this alternate ending where nothing goes right. Some of the best-loved generals on the Abianian side are killed and General Manly marches across the land with an army of demons behind him and the Christians are ultimately overthrown. It's as if, even after finishing his book, Henry just couldn't quite bring himself to believe in happy endings. 
After he asked his landlord, Nathan, to help him move to a nursing home to live out the rest of his days, Henry declined quickly. Nathan and Kyoko and their friend David went to visit Henry in the same home for the aging his father had died in. Amid the clamor of the other residents, the televisions, the general noise, Henry sat alone in a chair with his head slumped on his chest. He didn't really respond when anyone spoke to him. The only time he did seem to come out of his bleak inner world was when Nathan told him that they'd found his art and his story. Nathan told Henry that he'd never known he was an artist, that his art was beautiful and unique, and Nathan said he believed it was all very important and would be of great interest to other people, to other artists especially. Nathan was thinking, but didn't say aloud, that this was a discovery on par with the cache of Van Gogh's work that had been so ignored during his lifetime, but finally recognized as holding great significance in the history of art after Van Gogh had died. When Nathan told Henry that he thought his work was really something special, Henry answered, Well, it's too late now. Those were the last words Henry Darger was known to speak. He died in the St. Anthony home for the age just a couple of weeks after he entered it at the age of 81. He was buried in a pauper's grave in De Plain, Illinois, but shortly after he was buried, Nathan purchased a proper headstone to commemorate one of the greatest and truest American artists who's ever lived. A man who was humble and poor and unappreciated and misunderstood, but who created because it was the only way he knew how to exist within this world as a maker of art. The grave marker reads, Henry Darger, 1892-1973, artist, protector of children. This is surely a great gift from God himself. It is the best gift of all. The more you draw, the better you'll be able to draw. Do the best you can, and draw everything you can lay your hands on. all I have for you this time and thank you as always for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher and if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, take a minute to rate and review since that defeats the evil General Manly and helps me find more curious weirdos like you. I would love to see this podcast continue to grow so if you've been enjoying Future Saint of a New Era, tell a friend! Nothing helps creators find their audience quite like recommendations from one person to another and I would love it if you'd do me a solid and spread the word. Music included The Japanese Sandman by Paul Whiteman I'm Sorry Dear by the Jacques Renard Orchestra Kiss Me Goodnight, Not Goodbye by Phil Spittlemy and his orchestra, and St. James Infirmary by Louis Armstrong, all in the public domain. Sound collage components came from the 2004 documentary In the Realms of the Unreal by Jessica Yu. Please go check it out. It's wonderful and was even nominated for an Academy Award. It's one of my favorite documentaries of all time, and it was my introduction to Henry Darger and his incredible work. I know you will love it as much as I do. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit Future Saint pod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Good.